You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Romans 4, 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is through the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of God. Well, good evening. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Honored that you've chosen to begin your new year worshiping with us here. And uh, I do look forward to having you a little closer next week uh, on John's recommendation. That'd be nice. Hey, um, uh, for those of you that don't know, I grew up in the church. My parents were both believers. My dad was a deacon in, a ch- in the church we grew up in. Mom was a Sunday school teacher. And um, they both sang in the choir. And so uh, for whatever reason, uh, they found some other folks to watch me and my brothers during the worship service until they could come down from the the choir area. And uh, so I spent a lot of time sitting next to uh, Miss Edith uh, about the fourth row at a Baptist church in Southeast Missouri for many, many years. And in this particular church, um, this was a piano and organ church. Okay, so uh, what we had for music were those two instruments and our voices, a choir. And uh, we sang exclusively hymns. We had a hymn book. In fact, I think on the back of some of these pews, there's uh, some of those things, these artifacts called hymn books. And uh, these hymn books were what we sang from every Sunday. We would sing four or five a Sunday. And our family was actually there anytime the church doors were open, and they had church on Sunday night and Wednesday night. And so we sang a lot. I sang a lot of hymns. I sang a lot of the same hymns over and over and over. And as a kid, uh, I, I don't know, I don't remember, 
but I don't know if I really grasped the, the beauty and the depth and the doctrine, really, of the great hymns of the faith. It's, it's really as I've gotten older that the words of those songs uh, have become so much more meaningful to me. And I'm, I'm, I like all kinds of, of music, all kinds of worship. I, we obviously here at Mercy View do kind of more of a, uh, a mix of that contemporary and hymn stuff. So, uh, you know, this is, this is just uh, my experience in growing up in singing those songs. I, I don't think I appreciated them like I should have or like I could have. But as I've gotten older, I have actually grown in my appreciation for the, the hymns uh, that we sang. And one of those songs uh, that we sang a lot, and this was not necessarily a hymn that uh, had been written many, many years ago. It was what would be considered a newer hymn. It was written uh, in the 20th century. Is a, is a song called Standing on the Promises of God. Now again, if you grew up in the church, more kind of traditional piano and organ church like me, you might remember that song, Standing on the Promises of God. And, and I, um, there's a, uh, you know, if you were to say, Brad, like name off, or can you like recite the lyrics of Standing on the Promises? I might be able to get through verse one. This week I went back and, and because of what we're pre- talking about tonight, what I'm preaching on, um, I began to look at the other verses. And, and there's a, a, a verse four that I'm sure I sang as a kid, but in, in looking at it this week, it was as if it was brand new, and I kind of wish I would have known the, the beauty and the depth of this verse. Let me just read it to you. Here's what the fourth verse of Standing on the Promises of God says. Standing on the promises, I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God. As I looked at that verse this week, I I thought about really this juxtaposition of two words in that verse that don't sound like they really should go together. I don't know if you heard it, but it said, standing on the promises of God. And then that third line said, resting in my Savior as my all in all. I began to think this week, how does standing on the promises of God look like resting? How can the writer of this hymn say that standing on the promises of God actually results in or leads to rest? What do the promises of God have to do with that, right? I mean, the writer of this hymn is talking about some aspect of our walk with Christ, our faith, in which we are to stand on what we know to be true about what God has said about himself and about his action towards us. There's something about that that is meant for you and I to actually find peace in and rest in. I appreciate um, what Troy said uh, during worship. We, we are fighting for rest in this time. A long two years. How might one of the keys to rest and peace for you, particularly as we think about this new year, what might that have to do with standing on the promises of God? Tonight, we are continuing our series through the first 11 chapters 
of the book of Romans called Reign of Grace. And we began this series, if you've been with us, you remember back at the very end of September of last year. And as we said at the outset of this series, we're going to take our time and kind of simmer in this. We're not going to rush through the book of Romans. It's a a great book. It's a book that in many ways captures the heartbeat of who we are here at Mercy View. So we don't want to rush through it. Um, So we're going to make our way through chapter 8 by the end of March, just by way of a preview. We'll take a break in the spring and the summer. We'll return to Romans in the fall and get us through uh, Romans uh, 11 then. But as we look tonight at the last half of chapter 4, a couple weeks ago, uh, Trey, uh, our our church planning resident, walked us through the first half. Uh, I want us to see really two things here in the second half of Romans 4. If you want to write this down, you can. The first is this. Through faith, the promises of God can bring rest and hope. Let me just say that again. Through faith. The promises of God can bring rest and hope to you. And then second, the promises of God find their yes in the gospel. The promises of God find their yes in the gospel. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Romans chapter 4, beginning there in verse 13. If you remember, in the first part of chapter 4, a couple of weeks ago, Trey showed us the connection between faith and righteousness. Did a great job, served us so well. Now, tonight, in the same chapter, Paul is going to make another connection for us with this idea of faith. I want you to look there in verse 13. Paul says that the promise comes through faith. In my Bible... There's a heading over this section, the second half of chapter 4, that says, the promise realized by faith. That is a pretty good summary of what is happening here in the second half of Romans 4. Paul is going to say that our faith, our belief in God, is what is counted or credited or realized to us as righteousness through the promises of God. All right, that's a mouthful. Let me just say that again. He is going to tell us, this is the summary, I'm just giving it to you at the top, that our faith is what is counted or credited to or realized to us as righteousness through the promises of God. And he's going to tell us three things about this promise, and I want to just walk through those three things, and then He's also going to move on later in the, towards the end of chapter 4 and, and talk about a, a, another thing that's really interesting. But let, let's first look at these three things uh, that Paul is saying. I want to highlight these things so that you understand what I mean when I say that faith is connected to promise. The first is there in verses 13 through 15. Look there with me if you would. Paul's first point reiterates an idea that we have been hitting over and over like a drum since we've started Romans. And it's this isn't the last time you're going to hear it because this is a big theme, if not the theme, of the book of, of Romans. And, and here it is, verses 13 through 15. Paul is saying again to us, righteousness comes not from any work on our part. All right? The righteousness that God gives the Christian 
does not come because we do something to earn it. That's Paul's reiteration here in verses 13 through 15. But Paul does do something a little different than he's done up to this point in Romans because he wants to show us that this same approach uh, pertains to the idea of the promises of God as well. Now, when you see the word promises here in Romans 4, what you need to know that Paul is saying is he's talking in general about something that God declared will happen or has happened. And you actually see throughout the entire Bible this idea pop up a lot. God makes promises that he follows through with And then, in the New Testament in particular, we are called to place our faith and trust in those promises. There are a lot of promises in the Bible. But but Paul wants to highlight one promise in particular here to actually encourage us. I want you to see this. Um, It's there in verse 13. He actually goes back to the Old Testament, which again, we've seen uh, uh, Paul do this in different ways so far in Romans, but... um, Here, he goes back to the story of Abraham, and he says that Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world. And that phrase, heirs of the world, is the promise that Paul in particular is wanting to highlight here for us. Among all the promises that we see in the Bible, that is the promise that Paul wants to highlight here. And what Paul is talking about is something called the Abrahamic covenant. It's something we see back in Genesis 12. Now, you may may remember that Paul referenced this in the first part of Romans 4, when God said to Abraham that he would be the father of all the nations of the earth, and that through him and through this blessing uh, to him, he would then, and and, and being the father of of the nations, would be a blessing to, to everyone. But what's interesting here is that Paul starts, he talks about that, talks about this this promise, but he jumps all the way to the very end of the story, like the story of, of us, of humanity, and, and says that uh, the story of redemption where God brings about the restoration of all things, uh, it's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. He says that when that restoration happens, because... Uh, Abraham and his offspring, which includes you and me, will be heirs of the world. What, what Paul is saying is that those who are in Christ will once and for all rule and reign with God in all of eternity, what we see in Revelation 22. So the promise that Paul is saying that Abraham put his trust in, and, and as is the case in, in the Bible, it's his exhortation to us to put our trust in as well. It's the promise that the, the that those who believe in Jesus, those who've placed their faith in Jesus, will be heirs of the world with Jesus. You and I, one day, will reign and rule with God in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be co-heirs with Jesus. Now, I am just wondering, as you hear that tonight, how does that land on you? I just told you, that if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you will one day in eternity be co-heirs with Jesus, ruling and reigning over the new heavens and the new earth. Now, some of you are like, man, I don't, I don't get that, Brad. Like, I'm, I'm unworthy of that. 
Um, I, I, or, or maybe like that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I'm just a, you know, I'm just a guy. I'm just a, a gal. I, I, one day you're telling me that, that I'm going to be a ruler and someone who's reigning over things. Friends, look at me right here, right now. Yes. This is one of those things that should stagger us a little bit as we think about the promise of God or the promises of God. I actually don't know if I have thought that much about this promise. And Paul is wanting to say to you and I that, that this promise is a promise that God has made. But why? Don't miss this. The point here is that this promise comes to us not based on anything that we have done, but through faith. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why a promise like this is really hard to stomach for you and I because we're like, I haven't done anything to deserve something like that. In fact, in verse 14, Paul reminds us that if being an heir was fulfilled by you and I earning it, working for it, it actually void the promise. You see that? Because again, the promise comes to us and for us, not because of our work or our actions, but the action of God. Righteousness does not come from works on our part. Now, there is a second thing that Paul wants us to see as we consider the relationship between promises and faith. Look there in verse 16, if you would. Paul says that the promise must rely on faith. We haven't really um, said it that way so far in Romans, but Paul, again, he's trying to give us different ways of, of understanding this truth. And so Paul is going to say now, actually, the, the promise that, 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 that one day you and I will rule and reign with, with, with God in eternity, that promise, among all the promises of the Bible, must rely on faith. Why? Well, look there, he says, so that the promise may rest on grace. Here's what Paul is getting at. If the promise of God is made through his grace, we can't earn it. We can't maintain it. Or it's not grace anymore. I, I've used this analogy to you. It's, it's the idea of, of, of a gift, right? You, you, when you received gifts at Christmas, just, what was that, last week? Not, I don't, and in our family this didn't happen. There wasn't one person that said, what, you know, when they opened the present, they said, thank you. No one then said, hey, what do I need to pay you for this? Why? Because it was a gift. Grace is a gift that comes from God. In the same way, we, we, we need to see that if we don't, if we don't work to earn it, um, it can then come to us through the gift of grace. It's the good news of grace, actually. It actually should give us freedom. It should give us peace and sort of like this release that, because here's the deal. I, I think about this a lot. I don't know how I would ever figure out if I've done enough. How would you? How would you know that you've done enough to earn it? 
If you think that you've ever gotten to a place where you can do it, I'm sorry, friend, you are, you've been deceived in some way. We can't know that. But the beauty of grace is we don't have to. The beauty of grace is it is an undeserved gift that comes to you by way of grace. And I love this word that Paul uses here. It's a word that I think really helps capture the way in which you and I interact with grace. Because one of the challenges we're going to see in Romans is how do we deal with the fact that God sovereignly chooses those whom he would save? Like, what is our responsibility as humans in that? Do we have any? Do, do, we, do we work in any way? Are there any actions on our part? <clears throat> we're going to talk about this here just a, a little bit in a moment. We'll be talking about this a lot, particularly as we get into Romans 8 and Romans 9. But the word rest is a really helpful word for us as Christians as we think about how you and I interface with grace. One of my favorite authors is an author named Tim Chester. He's out of the UK. And in his book, You Can Change, he uses a couple phrases which I think are also really helpful as we think about our interaction with grace. He says, don't think of grace as working, you know, like, or that that receiving grace is somehow a work. What we really do when we rest in grace is that we are cooperating with the work that God is doing in us. I think that's a really helpful word. There's, there's a cooperation. We are working, working with God. But I, I, I like this word maybe even the best. We rest in grace. In, in other words, we fall back into it. It's like like a pillow that we fall back into. God's grace is not earned, but it's received. And here's the deeper good news. If it was up to us, how would we ever know if we worked enough? That is the beauty of the promise of grace because through Jesus and his offer of grace, the free gift of grace, we can know that we have it because he has secured it for us and he actually gives the gift of faith to believe in it. The promise rests on grace. Now, the last idea that Paul connects to faith and the promises of God begins there in verse 18. Look there with me if you would. Paul says, in hope, he's talking about Abraham still, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Paul has given us here a window into the heart of Abraham. Abraham was a realist. Uh, if you heard Marla read um, this passage, you heard how old Abraham was whenever God came to him and made the promise to him. He was way past, uh, you know, the age that you and I would understand uh, where he and his wife could conceive children, like way past it. And it says here that Paul, or excuse me, that Abraham hoped against hope, which is to say this, Abraham did believe God despite what he saw, what he knew, what he understood about reality. And that's the last connection that Paul is, is making here, the connection between the promises of God, of God and hope. And he talks about a couple of ways that hope um, manifests itself as we place our faith in the promises of God. First, if you jump back to verse 17, you, says that, you see that it says Paul um, is saying that hope is found in a God who gives life to the dead 
and is the creator of all things. What's Paul saying that for? What does that have to do with hope? Well, Paul's point is that a God like that, that's that powerful, that that, that mighty, um, that's a, a God who's worthy to place our, our, our hope in. A God who can resurrect the dead, whether that's physically or spiritually, and who created everything that you and I see is a God that we can find real hope in. And then he also says there in verse 19 that when God came to Abraham and promised to make him the father of nations, he was an old man. And, and I, again, he's letting us into the heart of, of Abraham. Abraham hoped against hope in in like horizontal terms, like looking around him circumstantially, um, he was too old to conceive a child, let alone be the father of many nations. But Abraham knew God and he believed God and he hoped against hope and God followed through with his promise. In fact, that is the what verse 20 captures. Abraham kept placing his faith in the promises of God in spite of what he saw with his eyes, and he grew strong in his faith because of it. Fully persuaded, Abraham was fully persuaded that God would be faithful, that he would do what he said he would do. See, Abraham didn't see how. He had no understanding, had no idea how God was actually going to do it, but he knew who could do it. Here's the first thing that I want you to see this evening. Through faith, the promises of God bring rest and hope. Friends, there is no question that we are living through a time where rest and hope is at a deficit. Whether it's in our lives, in the lives of those around us, in our city, in our country, in our world, we're almost to, to two years worth of us being shaken to our core. We've been anxious, we've been restless, we've been troubled. There's many other things we could say, but friend, there is no greater truth that, you, that, that I need to hear, that you need to hear as we enter this new year than what Paul has just said to us. You can, and man, I'm preaching this to my heart, you can have hope. You can be hopeful this year. You can um, have rest by placing your faith in, your trust in the grace of God. Remember what Paul is saying here, your eyes will deceive you. If you look only at your circumstances, they will tell you something. They will tell you something that, that maybe um, they want you to believe. And you will be tempted to believe it. But if you look to the promises of God, many times the promises of God help us see reality differently around us, if that makes sense. In fact, many times the promises of God give us a completely different perspective altogether than what is happening around us, what we see. When I think about hope, I, a lot of times I just have the wrong idea about what hope is, what it means to be hopeful. I think it's 
many times, even if I don't think this, I, I act like this is true. It's wishful thinking, right? That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that an always faithful God will continue to be faithful. How many times in the last yeah, year and a half or so have you and I been tempted to question that? And how many times have we actually let ourselves believe that God isn't faithful? But Paul is trying to spur us here to, to, to understand that our um, rest and hope can be found by placing our trust in something that maybe we don't see, but know is true. The promises of God. Who God is, who He says He is, who He's promised to be to us and, and for us. And, and ultimately, Paul is saying, our rest, ultimate rest, will be realized. I think um, I'm reminded a lot when I'm feeling the weightiness of life, the gravity of life. Um, I, I just have to remind myself, part of what I think the Lord is doing is creating a longing for heaven. He's creating a discontentedness with this world and its brokenness and its, and its, and its sadness. All of the stuff that a lot of us have felt so pointedly over the last year and a half. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I can have a weird like codependency with that, you know, where, where I'm just like, I just accept that that's how things are and and I forget about this eternal perspective that actually God wants me to have and, and wants us to have, that in the midst of real difficulty, some of that, that sting and that pain that I feel is meant to create a deeper longing to be with Jesus in eternity. Paul's saying here that we get to spend an eternity with a faithful God who will one day wipe away that pain, wipe away that sorrow, wipe away that heartache. The way that God fulfills His promise in the Bible and in our lives has never changed. God's past provision is the best predictor of His future faithfulness. Do you have that kind of faith? in the promises of God? Through faith, the promises of God bring rest and hope. If you would look with me quickly at verse 22, we're gonna close here, but we see Paul return to where we began this evening. Abraham was called to place his faith fully in the promises of God. He, he does that, and, and, and that is why verse 22 says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And um, if we look at what, what Paul is doing here, we see that, that he is again trying to reiterate to us that the promises of God rest solely on the grace and the mercy of God. That, and that's the action of God, not our work, but his work. And the promise of God must be believed, right? Whenever it says that, that, that the faith of Abraham was counted to him as righteousness, Paul is trying to help us understand the role of faith in our walk with, with Christ as well. 
We must place our faith in the promises of God. We're called to do that because God himself stands behind it. He's faithful. He's worthy of our trust. But then look at what Paul says there in verse 23. Let me just read that for us. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, Abraham's sake, but for ours also. And Paul is turning the, the or making a turn here and, and, and putting the mirror uh, up to us now. And I love this because sometimes in passages, we, we have to sort of just do that ourselves. You know, like what, how am I supposed to respond to what this writer is saying? Paul doesn't leave us any mystery here. He turns the mirror towards us and says that the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Paul is challenging us in this moment to look inward. See, the question that you and I must wrestle with today, and it's really the question of all questions, is do you really believe this? Do you believe in the promise of God? Do you believe in the promises of God for you? And then Paul does something really masterful. I wish we could go more deeply into this. He diagnoses our problem. He talks about our trespasses, which is another way for uh, us to talk about our sin. Um, but then he goes on to say that because of this sin, God delivered up his son Jesus for them. In other words, to say, though the, the result of our sin should have been you and I have to pay for them, uh, Paul says, no, no, God sent his son Jesus in your place to be delivered up for your sin. And the reason why Jesus could do that is because uh, he lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. And then to be delivered up is, is another way of saying that he was crucified. He died as a substitute where we should have been for our sin. And then verse 25, he continues with this story uh, of the gospel and this bedrock, really, of what Christianity's promise is by saying he was raised then for our justification. Now, we've talked about justification already. Um, we're going to hear it a lot in the book of Romans. Again, just a quick definition. Uh, justification is a, a, a legal term that means to declare someone not guilty, who was guilty. But notice that it says that Jesus was raised for this idea. He was raised for our justification. See, the reason that justification is connected to resurrection is because of the connection between sin and death. See, if, if in regards to Jesus, it means he had only died and not rose from the dead, it would not signal that sin had been dealt with. It would not signal that sin had be de been defeated. Actually, sin... Um, as a, a curse on humanity uh, would still reign. But if Jesus conquers death by being raised to life, then everything changes. It means that his death was acceptable to God for the atonement of our sins. It means that Jesus was the Son of God. It means that death and sin have been defeated. And for us today, like in real time, it means that sin does not have to dominate our lives. We can have victory now 
A relationship with Jesus can happen now and it can change our lives. Guys, that's good news that matters today. So when we put that together, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, you have the ultimate picture of the promise of God for you. And Paul is saying, yeah, I mean, earlier in this this chapter, he's saying one day you're going to rule and reign with God in all of eternity. But Paul is trying to say here now, there is power today. You don't have to wait until the new heavens and the new earth to experience in an ongoing way the freedom and peace and hope that God wants to give you. Paul is, is trying to say that this promise that we place our faith in, the gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection of God, it is in the end what gives real hope and rest. Friend, it's the only thing that's going to give you real hope and rest for 2022. And this brings us to the second thing I want to invite you to see this evening. The promises of God find their yes in the gospel. Here's what I mean. Do you ever wonder if God is for you? Do you ever wonder if God is committed to you, if he's covenanted to you, he loves you? Look no further than the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because if you look at those places, you will see that the answer to the questions, if, if, is God committed to me? Is he covenanted to me? Does he love me? Is yes. The gospel is God's yes to your doubt. It's God's yes to your uncertainty. It's, it's his yes to your skepticism. Paul is trying to show us that the way that God treated Abraham is how he's still treating people today. That's why he says that these words were not written for Abraham's sake alone. God's dealing with Abraham was a prologue for what was to come in your life. In the the moment that, that God brought you into the world... And the moment that the, all the moments you've lived up to this moment that you find yourself in, what God was doing with Abraham was a prologue. It was a, a preview of what God wants to do in your life. In this way, a lot of what Paul is doing here is he's taking us back in history, but to say that same kind of history can break through into your life if you wanted to. Even in this year of 2022, many, many years removed from the story in the life of Abraham. If you do the same thing that Abraham did by believing that you are a hopeless sinner, that Jesus died to pay for your sins and that God raised Jesus from the dead, God counts you as forgiven and righteous and his. Putting one's faith in Christ is the beginning of of trusting in God. If you're here tonight and that's your story, we'd love to talk with you about what it means to do that. But really what we're talking about here also deals with all of us that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus already. We are to continually do that. We keep trusting in the one who keeps us trusting in him. It's where we find hope and rest. That's why the fourth verse of standing on the promises for me is so much more meaningful. Standing on the promises, I cannot fall, 
Friend, you, you cannot fall if you stand on the promises of God. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call as we lean into the Spirit, third person of the Trinity, who, who Jesus sent to us to be our helper, to be our counselor, listening every moment to his call, then resting in my Savior as my all in all. For some reason, this writer brilliantly helps me, I hope it helps us see that standing on the promises of God looks a lot like resting. Friend, you cannot fall resting in the promises of God. Rest in his promises, place your faith in his promises, and the result is rest, hope. Let's pray together.